0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the third weekend of June 2022. We are just a couple of days away from summer solstice, that longest day of the year. So lots of daylight to get out and explore, and we've had plenty of sunshine here lately in Sitka, mixed with some marine layer, although I understand it's supposed to rain a bit this week. I was able to get out a bit this past week and take advantage of an exceptional low tide series. It was nice to renew acquaintances with some of the creatures I've seen before as well as find a couple of new ones to me. One of the creatures that was new to me was called a branched sapsucker, a nudibranch-like creature that actually eats the green algae and stores the chloroplasts and is able to utilize the photosynthesis internally, which I thought was pretty neat. There's also been some interesting birds here in Sitka. We've had a gray catbird around for a week and also, uh, this weekend, western tanager and warbling vireo, both of those very rare species here in Sitka. In June, it is a time of year we get overshoots and kind of wandering birds that aren't breeding. So if you're seeing anything unusual, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Andrea Mott, a wildlife biologist from California who works with the USGS Western Ecological Research Center. Andrea reached out to me when she saw my report of a collared greater white-fronted goose here in Sitka that spent some time at Swan Lake. Uh, I thought it would be fun to talk to her and learn a little bit more about this goose, which she was responsible for banding and collaring, and also a little bit more about the geese and their migration patterns, their lifeways, as they just pass through here each spring and fall. So we'll go ahead and join the conversation with her telling me a little bit about the goose that was collared.
1: The goose that uh, you saw uh, in Sitka was one that I put a transmitter on last September. So that would be September 2021. It's a GPS GSM transmitter. And so what that means is it's taking GPS points and then it's able to actually offload the data via um, cell phone towers. So uh, we have it set to um, send us data every 24 hours. Um, So that's kind of also how I had an idea which goose you had taken a picture of. I was like, well, that's the only one in Sitka. So it's got to (laughs) be the one that he's, you know, taking a picture of the one on my map. So that's what that is.
0: (laughs) Well, that's handy. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, there was a bar-tailed godwit that had a I think it was just doing satellite, but I got an email from somebody, there's a bar-tailed Godwit that showed up in your area. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, it wasn't all that close. I mean, it was close enough. I I did try and get a boat ride and and look for it, but I didn't have a lot of time to to look for it and didn't end up finding it. But it's kind of cool that sort of near real time, you can track these. And I suppose with cell tower stuff, maybe that's even faster than the satellite transmitting.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So um, I mean, yeah, this one uh, obviously was a little more in town than it sounds like your godwit was. What was it in a park?
0: Uh, the goose. Yeah. Yeah. There's a local lake here called Swan Lake. It's right in the you know central part of town. It actually gets an interesting number of unusual birds. I, I think partly just because it's the only sort of lake like that right close to town. So if a bird happens to show up and like that habitat. There's also a lot of mallards there, and so uh that that are kind of resident and moving between there and an estuary that's nearby, and they're pretty acclimated to people, so that may also help bring in other interesting birds but yeah, there was a flock of i can't remember it was like up to thirty five maybe uh white fronted geese that were there for several days they were moving between there and a ball field. I didn't see them at the ball field, but other people were reporting them up there, just basically we don't have a lot of grassland here i mean those are lawns essentially and they were they were chowing down on the grass and when the grass wasn't long enough they were <laughs> it, it looked like their second second favorite was was uh, or, or their second option was to go and like eat the sedges that were at the edge of the lake and stuff but they they definitely seemed to prefer the lawn
1: oh yeah yeah true to true goose form i guess <laughs> yeah eating lawn clippings
0: so this was a bird that hatched last year and then and then flew down. And uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was looking into this a little bit is that these, these tule geese, this subspecies, and if I understand this all correctly, they're a subspecies that nest, I don't know exactly where, but I've I heard cook and lead is, is an example, but, but in particular in forested areas. And that makes them more difficult to monitor because you can't do flyovers to see nesting populations and do population estimates. Um, but conveniently. Uh, for your work, they show up at this place called Summer Lake in Oregon, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's primarily this subspecies that's hard to count otherwise. Uh, and then they ultimately go down into was it Central Valley in California where they're they're wintering there. But but there they're mixed in with the with the other subspecies and just kind of these big big flocks.
1: Yeah, I mean everything you said is uh, that's <laughs> correct. Um, they are super hard to kind of get eyes on or you know we wouldn't even try to trap them really on the breeding grounds because you know they do like the more forested like boggy spruce areas so I mean I haven't seen it personally but it doesn't look like anywhere that I would want to try to venture into to try to trap a goose when it's a lot easier um on a stopover spot which is uh summer lake (laughs)
0: Do you have a sense of why they why they like that and why them? So I mean, I guess it's hard to know, but why why that subspecies and and the other ones apparently aren't stopping there?
1: I mean, I'm not super sure because I mean, what makes anything do <laughs> anything really? But I mean, in general, like the Tule Goose is slightly different than its smaller. Uh, bodied um you know the other white fronts and but you know the two of are pretty big and they act kind of more like swans so like they kind of prefer more like wetlandy stuff versus you know um the pacific white fronts and snow geese and stuff where they you know nest on these large colonies and these more like tundra open areas um so you know summer lake is really good for that kind of thing but why they stop there specifically and almost exclusively versus the white fronts the well excuse me the regular white fronts if you will don't i have no idea
0: <laughs> yeah yeah. is there, Are there other lakes in Oregon, or is it just that one that they stop at?
1: Um, I mean, occasionally they'll kind of stop at other little um, spots around Summer Lake, um, but it's like almost like clockwork. That's where they're going is uh, Summer Lake.
0: Hmm. And how much time do they end up spending there?
1: Quite a bit, actually. So they'll stop there on their spring and fall migration. Um, so usually they'll get... Uh, to Summer Lake in the fall, like on their way back from Alaska around mm, maybe mid-September, early to mid-September. And they'll kind of just like hang out there, refuel from their migration from Alaska, um, you know, hang out, I guess. (laughs) And then probably come down to the valley around maybe mid-October. Um, but when they decide to go, it only takes them like a day, less than a day, maybe 12 hours to fly from Oregon down to the valley. So it's like a pretty straight shot. When they decide they want to be in the valley, they go. Yeah,
0: My impression is, I mean, I'm not personally familiar with Central Valley much, but I it, it's a big, as I understand it, it's a lot of farmland down there. And is it is it a, traditionally where all these geese went, like before it became agricultural? Or is is there've been patterns that are shifting due to the increase in agricultural farmland kind of things or like how's that how's that all played out
1: yeah so in general like the the central valley and, and more uh, specifically the sacramento valley which is the um northern part of the central valley has been was was wetlands was mostly wetlands like back a hundred plus years ago, so you know, like I said before, like tules really like wetlands, so that's probably what brought them to the valley to begin with but then you know as agriculture kind of ramped up um you know the wetlands kind of uh you know were reduced um to maybe like you know ten percent of the wetlands that used to be there, so now Um, not only do they only winter in the Sacramento Valley, they kind of almost exclusively use this maybe like 30 square mile area in the valley, which, uh, has three, uh, wildlife refuges on, you know, that have managed wetlands and stuff. Um, not to say they don't go out of this boundary, but like, that's almost exclusively where the entire population hangs out all winter.
0: So is that of the of the tule geese as uh, and snow geese and uh, the other great greater white fronted goose subspecies or or is it just the tule geese that are doing that?
1: Um, so yeah, it's just the tules that are you know that exclusively using that 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 small of a spot. Um, I mean, mixed in with them are snow geese, Ross geese, the Pacific white fronts, but you know they go all over the place and you know further further south and, you know, further east, further west, et cetera, they, they're everywhere. (laughs)
0: Are are there, yeah, how many geese are are wintering down there? I mean, like, I'm hearing when I, when I look up geese on, like, uh, Birds of the World or, or uh, the Cornell site, uh, you know, it's like, seems like hundreds of thousands, but I don't really have a sense of how distributed their wintering range is. Are they mostly just concentrated in that area? And so there's just, like, tens of thousands of geese there in the winter, or, or how is it?
1: Um. Yes. I mean, they definitely spread out a lot. Like they they aren't only in me, California. Um. You know, there's a bunch in like the the middle of the continent as well. Um. But in the in the Sacramento Valley alone in the winter, we probably have three million oh, wow. snow just snow geese. <laughs> like, and then probably. I mean, I don't. I, I haven't looked at the numbers super recently, but like it's in the millions uh, with the geese. And then in addition, we have a ton of duck species. So it's kind of just like a it's it's so there's so many waterfowl here in the winter. It's outstanding.
0: Yeah, that sounds I mean, three million. That sounds like that sounds like a spectacle, really.
1: (laughs) It really is, though.
0: (laughs) Wow. And I mean, especially if they're all taking off and flying. At, or, I mean, probably not all of them at once, but like large, large flocks of them all flying together. And,
1: oh yeah, they do that, and it's just
0: gorgeous. <laughs> wow, yeah, that sounds sounds impressive. So, so what's the like the year in the life of a goose? This this goose in particular that was collared and showed up here in Sitka uh, would have been um, hatched somewhere in Alaska last fall or last summer, rather migrated you you uh and and the folks you're working with uh captured in uh summer lake in oregon he then presumably spent the winter in one of the messages you sent me when we were corresponding you were curious if if he was still with his his parents both so are geese like are they staying mated um, to the same to same birds Year over year, or like, are they monogamous over years? I guess, and and stay in family groups for a while, or like, how's that all working?
1: Yeah. So geese are monogamous. Um, generally speaking, they'll find a partner and stay with them uh, for life, or you know, until something happens to one of them. Unfortunately, sometimes that happens. Um, but yeah. So you know, this pair of tule geese had you know uh, about I think four um kids <laughs> goslings last summer and uh we were able to get the entire family group so what it was is you know they hang out together pretty closely like after the after the kids grow up and can fly they'll stick with their parents and so like when we trapped um them we got the whole family group and a couple other family groups too um, and so they got these collars. So, you know, it was really neat cause we were able to actually see w- where they went during the winter to see if they like kept together to see if like we had gotten like two separate family groups or one s- group. Um, so essentially it was, it was neat cause they just kind of followed them each other around the valley all winter. And, um, some of the people that we are doing this project with in Oregon, the CDFW, California uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, they also put uh, collars out, but they're slightly different. So they're they're blue and they have like a, a number code on them so you can visually recite them. And they have um, VHF, so very high frequency um telemetry capabilities so like those ones we could track as well so the ones I had were the kids of the dad that had a blue collar so what I asked you was I was wondering if you know that goose that you saw was still with its dad who had a blue collar which you probably would have noticed pretty easily um so I was mostly just interested to see if at that point, if he had left his father or not. And it sounds like he did. He's out there exploring the world.
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, these these guys, I ended up leaving town for a little while and they there were still some white fronted geese when I got back, uh, just a handful of them, but not the one with the collar. But it was, you know, it was into mid-May and certainly most of the geese have moved on. But it seems like every year there's a few that end up in town uh, and just hang out for, I don't know, a week or two, and sometimes even into like this year. There was a couple into the first of June, but but there's very few by the first week of June, and and pretty much none after the first week of June, unless it was like a bird that was injured or something. Um, and so I don't know what their sort of nest timing is, and are are these birds that are just a year old are they nesting or nesting sometimes but not always or or like how long does it take for them to reach maturity and and start you know nesting on uh, themselves
1: um so i i don't think they nest the first year back to the breeding grounds i think it's usually maybe the second or third year that they'll actually you know find a mate um and you know try to commit to nesting so Every year for most goose colonies uh, and other species, like there'll be kind of the non-nester group who will still fly up to the breeding grounds, but they'll kind of just associate with each other kind of separate from the breeding colony. Um yeah, you know, they, they they might still try to, like, uh, associate with the family group, with the parents or whatever. But oftentimes, if the parents are going to nest, they'll kind of, like, shoo the older kid away <laughs> so that they can have, you know, the next year's, um, you know, group of, of goslings. Uh, so, yeah. So, I'm assuming that the one you saw is just kind of... I'm hoping hanging out with the rest of his brothers and, you know, other little bachelor Thule Tule geese. Um, and, uh, I hope that he'll just come back down to the Valley and I'll get to watch him for a couple of years, you know?
0: Yeah. It'll be, how long, how long are these, what's the lifespan of, of these birds or do we, I mean, I guess we have a sense, but
1: I mean, I'm not sure like in general, in the wild, how long, I mean, geese are pretty long lived. Um, the, you know, we don't get a lot of like Thule band returns or anything because there's just not that many um, out there. But like, for example, snow geese, they can live up to 17, 18, 19 years. So I wouldn't doubt that this bird, um, you know, given the optimal <laughs> situation, you know, no depredation or whatever else, it could probably live into it, the teens for sure.
0: yeah. So, so this bird is presumably once he left here, continued north, not in as big a hurry if you're not going to be nesting, I guess, uh, you can kind of just hang out, um, and then, and then spend time up there near the nesting grounds. And then they all, so like I know with shorebirds, for example, the, the, there's a staged migration where you know, non-breeders or failed breeders tend to start moving south first, and then I think the females come, and then the males come, and then the juveniles come on their own last. Sounds like the family groups are staying together, but, but are there birds that are starting to, like these non-breeders, do they tend to move south first, or does everybody just kind of go all at once?
1: Well, this is really the first time we've had some younger birds marked, so The short answer is I don't know, and I'm hoping to kind of get a better sense of that, um, you know, at the end of this breeding season. But um, I do know that they all kind of molt together. Um, So they'll all kind of head further west, uh, kind of out in the, the YK Delta and kind of, you know, do their molt thing. And then I think they would... I mean, I'm hypothesizing that they'll all kind of just like group up and fly back uh, down to California together, or well, Summer Lake and then California together, but we will see.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting thing about geese, I guess, that maybe not everybody's aware of, but, but they have a molt where they, they can't fly, if I'm remembering, right? when mm-hmm. they're yep. molting? Yep. So they have to find a place that has food and I guess relatively few... R- relatively little, less danger, I guess. There's probably never no danger, but but a place that's relatively safe for them because uh, they can't fly away from from predators. And so it sounds like for for these white fronted geese, at least, it's it's kind of the Yukon Ketchikan Delta area in Western Alaska. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like geese definitely take advantage of safety in numbers because um, I mean, you know, that area out there is more like tender-y. There's not like a ton of stuff to like hide in. Um, so, you know, they, they kind of will flock up and group up. And I don't know if you've ever, you know, crossed a goose, but they're not very nice. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, that
0: was something, they weren't nice to each other. Uh, yeah. Just in, I was watching them and I feel like I've noticed it th- before, but this year, for some reason, it really stood out. You know, you have that, that, you know, you goose somebody or whatever. And I was like, well, that's where that comes from. Cause man, they were just, especially the, the there was a there was a, a three or four cackling geese in with them and they were mean to the cackling geese but they were mean to each other too they're just like constantly some some goose minding its own business another one come up and like bite his butt and they mm-hmm. kind of almost look like they got startled and flew off and it was just I was oh like, they're wow.
1: always picking on each other like that it's kind of funny to watch actually
0: It, um, it it's almost like they don't it seems funny that there's they're so honorary with each other, but they still are flock up so much. It's like maybe you guys just want to be alone.
1: <laughs> I well no, I've had that exact thought because you know, I, I do some stuff with Aleutian cackling geese down in California and they always just like eat in these cornfields like two inches from each other and they'll literally just like bump into each other and get like indignant with each other. And I'm like, Well, you guys don't need to feed two inches from each other. <laughs> there are ways around this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah it's I don't know I, I guess I don't I don't understand the mind of a goose, but it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me to watch them <laughs> doing that.
1: <laughs> yeah so but yeah they're they're pretty good at defending um, you know themselves and their young or their nests from you know foxes and well I don't even know really what you have up there uh, coyotes.
0: Yeah, in out in western Alaska, I don't think there's coyotes out there, but but foxes for sure and and maybe I'm not sure if there's any sort of weasel family members There probably are some out that way too that would be happy to I mean a a full-grown goose is probably an awful lot for like a mink to to take on, but I'm sure they'd go after smaller geese. Oh yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. But uh and then and then wolves, I don't know if wolves would go after geese or not. Um bears seem to eat anything that they can get there. <laughs> get their paws on. Oh, for sure. (laughs) So yeah, it's uh in, in Southeast Alaska, uh here we there are some nesting Canada geese, but but most of the geese are are pass throughs there, uh passovers mostly. And that's well that is an interesting thing that I've noticed over the years. Um most years uh we don't see you know we might see a couple dozen white fronted geese uh on the ground here in Sitka but every once in a while there's hundreds of them, <laughs> and I don't know if it's just a weather thing that the there's a, a stiff breeze and and so that it ends up uh, they don't make it quite as far as they normally do, and so they they end up landing down here. and And I guess more generally, the question that that comes to mind, and I don't know if you have enough data at this point to to have a sense of it, is how uh, you know how regular are their stopover points? You know, apart from Summer Lake, which seems to be very regular. Um, but in migration, uh, how much variation does it seem like? I don't know how far they're flying on any given flight, like a few hundred miles or or how far, and then and then are there their sort of standard stopover locations or does it tend to vary a lot from year to year and maybe from weather to weather, depending on when they're migrating?
1: Yeah. Um so you know, the Thule geese definitely are more, like, clockwork <laughs> with, you know, uh, Summer Lake uh, than the other geese. But in general, like, they'll stick to a similar flight pattern or, like, flight areas. And in general, like, they have the capacity to just go straight up to Alaska, like, in only a, a few days. It's it's pretty amazing. But like you had suggested, weather is all uh, often like an issue so like if something pushes them down they'll kind of just stop there to refuel or sometimes they'll they'll literally just land in the ocean and kind of bob around until you know the weather clears or maybe they just need a break or something like that um so it's it's pretty amazing um how how fast they can migrate to and from Alaska. Um, but no, I, the, the, the Pacific white fronts don't really have a specific, specific spot. They stop over like the tulis do, but you know, in general, they're using kind of the Gulf of Alaska and like the coastline down, um, uh, down back down to California.
0: So, are they, well, well, before I ask that question, as I'll just relate the, the last time that there were just these hundreds that showed up. A friend of mine was out kayaking out in the outer part of Sitka Sound. Sitka's kind of, um, it, it's back a little ways from the, the pure open ocean. There's a, a large sound out to the west. And so a friend was at the south end of that sound. And he said, early in the day, there were just large flocks of white fronted geese flying north uh over over the the outer part of the sound and then he said there was a stiff northwest wind blowing which would have been a direct headwind for them and later in the day he just he noticed many many smaller groups of geese flying back into land so it's like maybe they just a bunch of them got tired of the tired of the wind and said we're, we're done uh we're, we're gonna go land but then there were, they ended up in town. And once they land, it usually seems like they stick around for a while. They're like, oh, well, we got food, we'll hang out, we'll eat. <laughs> and, and then we'll, we'll pick up and go again. So it's kind of been interesting. There was at least one other time I'm aware of that that happened. And when I looked at the, that was before I was uh, paying attention in this way. And I, but I looked back at the weather records and, it, and like the day before had also been a really stiff Northwest wind, kind of very first week of May, kind of the last week of April sort of timing. So I I figured there's weather must have had something to do with it but I didn't know if they had kind of regular stopover points and and I, I guess you, you know you said that the Thule stop in summer both northbound and southbound mm-hmm. yep and and do there is there overall like I like I know some 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 birds uh have more of a loop kind of migration it seems like and others kind of go up and back the same way are the are the geese um, are the geese going in, like, for instance, Brant? For us, we see them a lot more in the spring and hardly ever see them in the fall. And my understanding is that they tend to just go across the Gulf and and skip the skip the coastline. Are are the the white fronted snow geese or tule geese doing doing that as well?
1: Um, they're more straight up and back with like a little bit of variation. Like sometimes they'll go like up the coast and then down across the ocean but in general it's 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 pretty much a straight line um but the more i see that with is the snow geese actually so we have a lot of um snow geese uh with transmitter collars on and they're pretty cool because they'll all the different flyways snow geese will essentially like bottleneck in alberta canada and they just like stop over there for however long they need to fuel up and kind of get a sense that the Arctic is likely um, melted <laughs> enough that they can put a nest down, and then they all head up to their various breeding grounds. And it's actually the ones that head to Wrangell Island, Russia, that do the circle circular um, migration, where they'll actually come down, um, you know, the west side of Alaska and across the Gulf of Alaska, instead of back through Canada, like some of the other ones do that kind of nest more mid-continent.
0: Yeah, snow geese are one that that we do see in the last couple of years, we've seen more of them than than we have in the past, for whatever reason, in the spring. Um, But usually it just seems like, you know, at most there's a handful and often not even that many. Uh, maybe one straggling in with a flock of white-fronted geese or something but in the fall we regularly see usually kind of mid-October it seems like is is when i most associate the timing of uh, again not so much on the ground but but you see them flying over in flocks <laughs> headed, headed south uh, much more so than in in the spring so i guess maybe that's those wrangle island snow geese most likely
1: yeah yeah i i, I assume so um uh just cuz they're already that far over <laughs> so it would be kind of a long way back to to canada and down so um yeah it's it's most likely what you're seeing
0: so are the snow geese uh they're nesting all across northern the, the arctic part of north america and then and then part of into siberia but they're all wintering in north america
1: uh, Yeah, the grand majority. That's, that's correct. And um, you may or may not know this, their populations kind of um increasing exponentially. <laughs> so, you know, there used to be like specific colonies in, you know, known areas in the Arctic. And now, you know, they're just kind of their populations increasing so much that they're kind of spreading out um, from their more historic colonies. So they're definitely taking up more and more space. Which, I mean, the Arctic's pretty vast, but also that's a lot of geese eating things. And then you have to think that, you know, they all come down to, like, the, Cal- or the Central Valley of California, and that's a lot of geese in a little spot. Um, so they definitely do spread out across the country. And some of them even go down into Mexico for the winter. Um, we've had some of our, our transmitter birds winter in Mexico before, which is pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah, I've, for for some reason, like I, snow geese, I think of well snow and and cold. So it's it's uh, sort of like an interesting contrast to then think of them being in Mexico. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's funny. Um, so the the snow geese, so their populations increasing rapidly. Uh, is there a sense of of what's allowing that, or what had kept that from happening before, or or you know the reasons for for the shift?
1: Yeah, definitely. It is because of agriculture actually. Um, so like I had mentioned earlier, like the, uh, central Valley of California is very like agriculturally based, um, in the, um, Sacramento Valley, it's rice, uh, specifically. Um, but also, you know, in the mid continent and, you know, the, the Dakotas and Kansas and there, it's a lot of agriculture with like, uh, wheat and rice, not rice. Um, corn, you know, grains, and the geese love that stuff. So, you know, as farming kind of uh, increases, it gives um, almost like an unnatural carrying capacity to the geese. Um, it kind of supplements uh, them further than, you know, what they normally would be able to, you know, support themselves on, I don't want to say natural food, but, you know, a more wild diet, if you will. And that's kind of like why, um, California has so many because rice fields are essentially surrogate wetlands. Um, because, you know, when they harvest the rice, they still have rice stubble. And, and one of the ways that farmers get rid of that rice stubble is by flooding the field and using it as like a decomp. And so the ducks and the geese kind of like chow down on the rice that's in this field, like the waste grains that got left behind after the harvest. So but, the, you know, the geese can eat from dry fields and wet fields. So, um, you know, with the drought we're experiencing less and less people have water for decomp, but that's not a problem for the geese. Cause they're like, oh, we'll just eat it dry. That's not a problem. You know, where the ducks, it's more of a, a situation because they, um, almost primarily eat, um, you know, the waste grains when it's flooded.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that the, the, the sort of ripple effects, I guess, of, of things that, that, uh, you wouldn't think that. California agricultural policies would have that much impact on the Arctic, but <laughs> you, you might be wrong about that i guess if if uh when it comes to like these massive numbers of of snow geese moving around um, which is uh yeah it's fascinating the way it's all all connected i guess you you probably from the sense of it are working with a number of other people on kind of a broader broader a project various species of geese, maybe waterfowl more generally. Like, what's sort of the overall aims of, of your project and and what you're trying to understand better?
1: Well, I mean, we have a ton of irons in the fire. <laughs> so, you know, me and my um, colleagues do um, all waterfowl um, in the valley, you know, ducks included. So, you know, we have various objectives. Um, so, like, with the goose thing, that that's more of like a... Habitat dynamic thing, and you know, we kind of can take our data and see like what it's telling us and kind of get better ideas on, you know, where they're going, what kind of habitat they're using, migratory routes, um, you know, stopover sites. And you know, there's been a lot of just like cool stuff we've seen that we didn't originally. Um, expect to happen and then we're like whoa this thing is happening let's talk about it so like for example um, one of the the more interesting things that we found in the last couple of years with the tule geese is the um, wildfire smoke has actually um, inhibited their uh, fall migration in 2020 so we were able to see that you know they were coming down from Alaska And we had noticed that, you know, it's normal for geese to sit and, you know, hang out on the water for a couple hours. But, like, we had noticed that a bunch of our marked Thule geese had sat on the water for more than 36 hours. And we're like, that's a long time. And then, you know, we kept watching them. And all of a sudden, instead of a straight shot to Summer Lake, you know, they were kind of flying over here, flying over there, going to Idaho, which they've never been in. And, you know, it got us thinking that maybe the wildfire smoke had something to do with this. And lo and behold, we found that, you know, the smoke had impacted them so much that they ended up taking like an extra, like almost 500 miles out of their way to get to Summer Lake because they had essentially gotten lost in wildfire smoke.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't (laughs) hadn't really thought about that, but like I I can't imagine that's any better for their breathing than it is for ours. Oh no! <laughs> um, so, and they're and and worse than that, they're like flying through it. So they they are you know needing to do all the breathing to to just maintain their flight. But I, I guess I don't know. I mean, I suppose smoke can be at different levels, and I don't know how high are these. Uh, I mean, how many? I, I guess maybe I'll just ask the question: It's like, what do we know anything about? Sort of the the heights at which they are, are preferring to migrate? I mean, do they have a lot of variability or is it pretty much they can fly up to X number of feet and and above that they, they won't go or.
1: Uh, yeah. So the, the, the transmitters that we have on them actually have like we can tell elevation that they're flying. And, um, on average, uh, you know, a normal goose, um, will migrate at about maybe a thousand meters, um, elevation or altitude. And, uh, you know, give or take, depending on, you know, what the weather's doing or, you know, if they're going over mountains or or whatnot. And what we actually found was in order to get through the smoke, it, they were going up and over the smoke. So they were at an altitude, like their collars were reading an altitude of 4000 meters, which is like two and a half miles in this sky, which is unheard of for these geese. So they were trying to get up and over the smoke because it was just so thick.
0: Mm, wow. So it's better yeah, better to be in the thin oxygen and and more difficult lift conditions than than breathing the smoke. And yeah, and I guess I I guess I mean I've heard there's been a lot of work done over the years I guess by various people into the means by which birds navigate. Um I don't know specifically how much work has been done with geese, but it sounds like maybe at least some of it's visual. Uh, maybe a lot of it's visual and, in that they, they weren't, presumably couldn't really see through the smoke either once they got over it, um, very well. Um, and so ended up in these, these strange places like, like Idaho.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely what we think had happened, um. They just got lost in the ocean and then on land. And then they, you know, the the journey that would have taken them about four days took them almost double that um, just because, you know, they had to fly. They kept getting lost and had to go back to where they thought they needed to be. And oh, my poor babies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I imagine imagine working with them like you you feel some attachment for 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 them in there as you get to know them better.
1: Oh yes. Oh yeah. I, I keep referring to them as the kids and <laughs> people are like, what, who are you talking about? <laughs> like, you know, the, the, the kid, the geese, the geese boys.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. Yeah. It's fascinating the way that birds, you know, of course, as, as birders, uh, folks, birder types, and, and I'll include myself in that, in that label for, for the moment, uh, get excited about uh, strange birds showing up, you know, I'm I'm still someday, maybe a Rossus goosel or wander by here. That'd be exciting for me. And, (laughs) and uh, you know, our, our latest excitement here locally is a gray catbird that is a a bit out of range. Really? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's a singing male. So it's been kind of cool to listen to it and and hear it. And um, it's only the second spring record for here, I think. And um, you know, several, I mean, maybe, I think maybe their, their typical Northern range is Washington, maybe um, in the Northwest. So, you know, maybe close to a thousand miles out. Uh, Strangely enough, one was reported elsewhere in the region, just like maybe a hundred miles or less uh, east of here the same day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I don't know what was going on, but, but a little bit of overshoots. And uh, so it is fascinating. And then in the fall, we get these birds that went, clearly they just went the wrong direction, you know? And so the ways in which, um, vagrancy happens and the, and the mechanisms that are sort of driving that, I guess, I don't know. And, and this may be outside the bounds of stuff that you've looked at, but is there a lot of, <clears throat> is there much vagrancy in geese or, or waterfowl more generally?
1: Um, I mean, yes, yes. And no, like I haven't really seen, any of our geese go wildly out of the way of what they, you know, what's in the realm of possibility. I mean, except for, you know, when they get lost in <laughs> wildfire smoke. Um, but, you know, we also uh, put transmitters on a lot of different duck species and we've definitely had one show up in Russia, um, like not Wrangell Island, but like kind of, the more you know mainland Russia um and then we had another one that just went clear over to Louisiana for some reason
0: wow just like went just flew east
1: yeah 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 because like you know they do north south really well but for some reason this one just decided it really wanted to go east to Louisiana
0: what what kind of duck was that
1: oh I think it was a pintail I think both were pintails um interesting yeah so not sure why um but yeah, that was an interesting, uh, you know, track to see.
0: Yeah. Well, it is, it makes me, I mean, I suppose with, with geese, from the sounds of it, they're very social. They're social migrators. And so maybe it's just less likely, even if you sort of lose your family, you'll tend to join another goose group, I guess. And And so then that would make it less likely that you end up kind of wandering on your own, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that's <laughs> the case. And I mean, geese definitely get, lost and they'll end up with like a group of cackling geese or there'll be a cackling goose in with you know the white fronts or or whatever but yeah usually they'll find a goose flock and you know not as lost
0: (laughs) yeah well and and every once in a while there's like last fall and it wasn't the first fall there's like a lone snow goose that just showed up and was kind of hanging around town for a while and it seems like i mean my assumption has been that that at some point It finds some other goose it hears some goose flock flying over and flies up and and joins them. But I don't really know. I don't know what happens with these these loners that end up and usually they seem like they're young birds. Um and I don't know if they just got tired or or what happened. (laughs) You know, I guess I can imagine all sorts of stories about, about how the how the young goose complain too much or something. And, and, <laughs> they just uh, dropped him up, off and said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You can stay or you don't like it, then stay. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I don't know how much instinct, presumably there's also a, an instinct for direction and, and where you need to go or, um, and not, it's not simply social learning.
1: Yeah. I mean, there definitely is. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, the importance of the family group is the parents kind of show their uh, the kids the way um, the kind of general landmarks like oh this is a good spot to stop over for safety and food and I mean that's probably why Summer Lake such a big one is because it's just been so ingrained through the generations and like the family groups showing the next generation that Summer Lake is a good place to stop over so I assume you know there's a lot of that going on but you know geese are good at, at at navigating for sure
0: yeah. You know, it's one of the things that's been interesting I've, I've been able to help out or, or you know sort of tag along with I guess uh, a couple of different banding studies of songbirds here and it's been in hindsight not surprised like it seems like well of course why would it be any any other way but because you don't really it, it's difficult to know birds as individuals for most of us uh especially if they don't have any kind of uniquely identifying marks but when we banded them, like we looked at junkos and, and there was another uh, study. Actually, somebody based in California out of Sacramento uh, studying uh, hermit thrushes did some banding. And we it turns out that she did her banding here and there's uh, some color banding, so it makes it a little easier. Um, and there was uh, somebody locally who she had banded a hermit thrush in, in his yard, I think three or four years ago now. And, and it showed up again this year, at the same yard, you know? And so it's like... I guess you know it makes sense that they would go to the same place because you know what the hazards are there, and you know where the food is, and you know it's familiar to you. Why would you go someplace completely new where you have to figure everything out? Uh, so, so I wonder—is that are you? Do you see that with with the uh, you know site fidelity for nesting and and that sort of thing? Are they going back to? Really, pretty close to the same spots where they nested in previous years.
1: Oh yeah, big time. Um, uh, you know, there it's like a pretty big general area where they can nest. But like one, like hens, uh, not excuse me, females that um, have nested two years in a row sometimes will be within like a hundred meters of the nest that they had done the year prior. It's just like they know that, like, oh, this is a safe spot. I hatched a successful nest so let's go there again and i will likely be able to do that again and i feel like that's kind of what's going through their little goose brains
0: yeah yeah i mean it makes total sense like it's not like we go to different houses every night you know <laughs> <laughs> right like, that would be really crazy yeah um so i suppose you know but they have the flexibility if if a forest fire goes through or something and kind of radically changes the habitat then then they're flexible enough to to find a new place if if they need to but but there is a uh a tendency towards, towards fidelity to, to a given site.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And actually uh, a fun fact that I like to tell people about Tule geese is that in 1989, a volcano erupted and completely covered their breeding ground. And that's actually why their population kind of dipped down, um, it's, it's since rebounded, but I thought that was kind of crazy that, you know, they essentially just picked up and moved over a little bit and, and started again.
0: Wow. Did they, has that habitat that was originally, uh, that they used originally and then was subsequently covered, has it recovered the habitat and they have gone back to using it?
1: I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I don't know what it looks like, but it seems like they just kind of, because it was, let's see, a readout volcano? Yeah,
0: Mount Readout and Cook Inlet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, they were kind of over there and, you know, they're not far from there, but I think they just kind of moved a little bit east uh, into like the Cook Inlet and, um, you know, up near uh, Talkeetna and and in there um, along the the Susitna River. Is that, is that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and they just kind of are there. And that's at least where most of ours are nesting. And um, so I, I just thought that was super interesting that they're just like, well, this uh, a volcano erupted on this one. So I guess we'll just move our, move our operation over a little.
0: <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, I don't know what the timing of the volcano is. Obviously it would have been pretty disastrous for them if it had been during nesting season. Um, presumably well I don't know I mean ash is pretty tough to fly through it's worse than smoke so Mm, mm -hmm. um, maybe it would have been real disastrous but um, but (laughs) I can only imagine what goes through their minds when they show up in in the uh, in the spring and and be like what (laughs) (laughs) this isn't Um, how I left it (laughs) yeah
1: yeah yeah I'm not sure what month uh, that actually erupted that's I I should look into that but yeah so they they figured it out
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you don't survive over the long run unless you have a certain amount of resilience and flexibility. If you're going to be, a, uh, you know, an animal like, like these geese that are migrating so far um, over, over broad stretches of, of space where lots of stuff, you know, in geological time, lots of stuff happens in any given year, it can be pretty stable, but, but in geological time, lots of, lots of stuff happens and, and droughts, you know, long-term droughts or long-term wet periods with lakes coming and going and and all of that. And do, do we have a sense of, of like the, I guess that, you know, that brings to mind sort of ice ages and and things like that over, you know, the last 20,000 years or so. And, and that's a topic of interest in Southeast Alaska, just because of the you know the way the landscape was fragmented and separated and the way animals have come in and recolonized and plants as well uh and and sort of the ways that like modern genetics allow us to and by us i mean the people who know how to do it not me specifically <laughs> but um <Yeah. laughs> uh, to to look into some of those those histories um of of the the way that they've they've moved and and been separate for a while or come back into contact um is i i don't have a sense I don't. I don't know, and I, I guess I'm not sure how much of a sense there is, how much work has been done, looking at kind of the the lifetime, you know, of the species of of white fronted geese, and and um, you know, they're as I understand it, just strictly a North American. Oh no, there's a lesser white fronted goose. I guess it's an Asian Asian species, so maybe maybe some uh, closely related. I'm not sure. Uh, and then and then uh, you know, like a sense of what they might have been doing. You know, I suppose they were probably around during the Ice Age and, and such.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I have not looked into this, but, you know, just you know, spitballing. Like, I wonder if these different subspecies kind of arose from, you know, different areas of, in the Ice Age that, you know, made different pockets of, you know, subspecies. Because, I mean, even though the Tules are just a subspecies, like, they've been pushing to kind of upgrade them to their own full species for a while. Um, like there's pretty good genetic evidence. It just hasn't quite gotten there yet. Um, Cause they're so like, yeah, obviously they look like a uh, Pacific white fronted goose, but you know, they're, they, they hang out in the same spot in the winter. They nest in a very isolated separate spot from the Pacific white fronts. Their measurements are consistently larger Um, And they kind of have like different preferences. So, you know, there's definitely some, the more technology we get, there's genetic work that, you know, could possibly push them into their own species.
0: Hmm. Yeah, they've been doing work like that in, like I say, in Southeast Alaska with, um, um, you know, most recently there's a big split of the ermine uh, uh, weasels. Uh, into several different species, and uh, including, including, I, th- I think there's at least one endemic species in Southeast Alaska that that um, seems to have persisted somewhere nearby uh, throughout the Ice Age, and then different different groups that were in the north or the east or the south, uh, and so it yeah it makes some sense. It, it, my impression is that that's. In in some songbirds, that that's driven some speciation as well as where where glaciers came down and and so breeding ter- territories became separate. They all winter in the same area in Central America or something, you know. But but they're isolated uh, breeders, and so so they have a chance to diverge in that way. But I guess so. The Tule geese maybe there's still some. Dis- I guess it's never like a bright line, you know. There's this gray zone of well, are they or aren't they? But it seems like they're reproductively isolated pretty much from the sounds of it.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think, you know, it just, we haven't really had much information on them. Um, You know, they they haven't really been studied all that closely, relatively speaking, throughout the years. So, you know, there's just lack of data um, about it. Uh, So, you know, I'm hoping going forward, like uh, working on tule geese and having a, a lot higher definition of like where they're going and what they're doing might kind of help inform uh maybe a a potential speciation there
0: Mm. well uh, so now i'm i'm kind of curious because i had i didn't really thought about it until this this moment is is you were talking about that haven't really been studied all that long i suppose i suppose the uh, ability to have them all at summer lake is is a big benefit to the ability to study them but i like how how long has it been known that it's just the two geese that are pretty much going there
1: Hmm, I think, so I think someone, I forget who, um, described them as a potential subspecies back in like the early 1900s, maybe like in the 30s, don't quote me on that. But then, you know, they didn't get actual full named and described until I think the 80s. Um, so, you know, that you know, people just didn't know that there was a separate subspecies flying around in the Valley or Alaska or whatever, uh, until kind of later. And from there it's kind of, you know, got studied more and I have no idea how they, you know, they finally had this aha moment that only two are at summer Lake, but it must've happened at some point. And
0: yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, I've seen them, you know, there was some discussion here, uh, among birders in Southeast Alaska, the region is like, well, how often are we seeing these tule geese? Um, and my sense when when it came to my awareness that it was a question, you know it was thought that they were pretty rare here and i and i was I was feeling like I was seeing them you, you know not very many of them it 's hard to know, but but i 've seen some each year probably but man it is it 's a little bit subtle sometimes some of them look kind of distinctly larger and bulkier, but a lot of them are just kind of like. It would be easy, you know, to imagine that it's just like, well, they just happen to be the biggest in 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 of the of the group that is sort of continuously varying in size from the slightly smaller ones to the slightly larger ones. So it's, I, I can understand why it, it might have taken a while for somebody to recognize them, you, you know, knowing that their habits are different and where they're they're nesting and where they're breeding and all of that, recognizing that that's correlated with this size, then it starts to. Be, yeah, the light bulb starts to go, oh, maybe there's something going on here. But just in a mixed flock, it would it would be hard to sort of see them as standing out as different, it seems like.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they definitely still do white-fronted goose things. So, you know, they're not completely, completely separate. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, I I think they're probably more than people – Notice that come through Sitka because I mean that's like a uh, a corridor that they go through um, almost every spring and fall. But I think it's just kind of like a detectability uh, thing where you know people just don't know what a tule goose is, or you know they are s- fairly subtly different. Um, so it's it is like I struggle sometimes uh, telling them apart because uh, there is like a little bit of overlap, like a really big. Pacific white front and maybe a smaller, um, Thule goose. But, um, in general, you know, if you have a a real small one standing next to an actual Thule goose, you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But, uh, you know, not, not always.
0: Yeah. Well, and so many of the ones that we see here are just flyovers. Like I, I imagine it's like basically impossible to detect them when they're, when they're in flight. Uh, they're not that much different, not like well, I mean, even with some of the cackling and the Canada geese, there's there's the depending on which subspecies, you know, there's there's some cackling geese that are obviously smaller than than all than some Canada geese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately, there's ones in the middle yeah. that make it make it messy. <laughs> yeah, um, or maybe fortunately, it depends on what we like to do. I guess uh, <laughs> yeah, some of us like little ID challenges. But, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it is yeah, it's been interesting to to learn a little bit more about these geese. And is there a way that if folks are interested in kind of the the results and the work that that's happening as as part of that project you're working on, is there any place that folks can go to kind of learn information or get more information about it?
1: Oh uh, yeah, so our office has um a website for uh, the Western Ecological Research Center that kind of outlines the projects. Um, I don't know the, the link off the top of my head, but I can definitely send it to you and uh, you know, you can post it or, or whatever you want to do with it. But yeah, it definitely has, uh, you know, the scope of our different projects and uh, you know, cool pictures and maps and stuff. So.
0: Nice. Well, it, uh yeah, it's been really interesting. I'm glad that you reached out to me when, when the, the goose was, uh, reported and, and found here, and yeah, I'll keep my eyes open. Uh, the the colors weren't so subtle, so um, I'll keep my eyes open if we see any more on the ground here. I guess I'll know the blue ones are not. They're they're not uh, satellite or, or cell phone transmitting. Um, but the, the, I guess it was kind of a brownish, brownish, reddish, brown sort of mm-hmm, color.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was so excited when you, uh, when I saw your pictures, they were so good. I'm like, Oh, it's my baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Well, it'd be interesting. I, sp- he probably won't, uh, you know, if he's, if, if assuming that he, uh, you know, hopefully makes it through to the next year in the breeding season, presumably he'll be in a little more of a rush and much mm-hmm. less likely to, yeah, to, uh, stop and, and hang out here. But, um, yeah, appreciate your time. Any anything else you'd like to say here before we wrap up?
1: Uh no, I think I think that covers it. Um, but thanks a lot for having me. Uh I love talking about geese. So this was a good outlet for that.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate your willingness to come share a little bit. And yeah, it's 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 fun to, you know, get a little insight into the ways in which I mean, we're what, fifteen hundred miles, twelve hundred miles apart um mm-hmm. here on the West Coast. But but connected by these birds. And, you know, they're, they're going, well, some of them all the way to, you know, the snow geese all the way to Wrangel uh, Island in, in Russia. So that's another, I don't know, 1500 miles, at least probably mm-hmm. um, from, from here. So yeah, it's, it's fun to, to get a little insight into these, these connections, which, you know, modern technology sort of facilitates our ability to, to know this. Otherwise it's just like for us here, it's so well. There they go again. They're going somewhere, <laughs> coming from somewhere, don't know where, right. um, but, but now we have a little better idea. Well, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Andrea Mott. Andrea is a wildlife biologist focusing on waterfowl with the Western Ecological Research Center, part of the USGS I want to thank her for taking some time to visit with me and also for sharing a couple of links for more information. I will include those when I post this show on my website, sitkanature.org slash raven if you'd like to see this or other shows that are in the archive. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there in this summer season. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. I look forward to being back in a couple of weeks as we are past the summer solstice. Until then, thanks for joining me this week. This has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.